You're listening to ReachMD. This medical industry feature titled, Uncovering the Undiagnosed, Perspectives on Screening for Alpha-1 Antitrypsin ATT Deficiency, is sponsored by Griffles. Thank you very much for the introduction today, Lori. And um, I'm going to now just briefly introduce the panelists who will be talking with me today on the particularly emphasizing the questions on screening for alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. So three very uh, engaged young uh, folks who uh, are, who will be participating today. Uh, the first, Monica Goldclam, is from uh, Columbia University in New York, which uh, and she's a very active investigator in alpha-1 as well as a, uh, a practitioner. Secondly, we have Igor from uh, UCLA, who's engaged not only in alpha one education, but also is uh, an intensivist and a an expert in liver disease and the liver component of alpha one antitrypsin. And lastly, Kyle Hogarth, who uh, is a uh, pulmonologist, critical care specialist from the University of Chicago, where he also is very well known for his uh, uh, interest in alpha one antitrypsin and his ability to educate healthcare practitioners on this uh, subject. So. We look forward to having a very engaging discussion focused on the eight questions today with these three panelists. The first question we're going to have today is a really important one. And and I uh, have worked many years with rare lung diseases, and uh, it really comes down to the medical community knowing about alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency since Dr. Erickson and, and his colleagues described it more than 50 years ago. Yet it is estimated that approximately 90% of people with this genetic condition remained undiagnosed. Why do you think that is, Kyle? What is your feeling about that a problem that remains a big issue? Uh, Jim, thanks for having me. And, and you're right. It's, a, it's an ongoing problem. And as I always tell people, it's just rarely tested for. And the problem with alpha-1 is because it principally causes emphysema and COPD and chronic obstructed airways diseases. We see those day in and day out. And so I've often said alpha is sort of lost in the noise of all of the obstructed diseases that all of us deal with. And so the, 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 you, you referenced, obviously, the original discovery of alpha-1, and that would probably represent the lowest hanging fruit. And what I mean by that is, do you really think we needed all this medical education to recognize a 40-year-old end-stage emphysema patient and a barely smoker? That doesn't make any sense. You you know something's weird, right? And so that's fine. But as we all know, alpha-1 has a wide variety of presentations. And so getting away from the clinical diagnosis of alpha-1, because there is no way to clinically diagnose this, to what it really is, which is a laboratory diagnosis, and the recognition that the suspicion for the disease comes with the diagnosis of an obstructed lung disorder, and shifting your brain from ruling it in to ruling it out. You know, and I always use the analogy, I, I, I've said, ordered a lot of CT scans to rule out PE, right. and it's a big number, and there's about this many PEs I've found. That's right. And, you know, I haven't stopped ordering it once I'm suspicious of it. Well, if I'm passing out an inhaler for the diagnosis of COPD, then I'm going to test you for alpha-1. And, you know, look, I want it to be negative, right? That, that's the right. other mindset right. we have I don't want anyone to have this horrible disease. And so I'm really glad when it comes back negative. That's right. Man, when that test shows up, anything. 
is it unbelievably important? And I know my panelists and colleagues are going to talk about, uh, you know, the other issues with the high carrier rate in the United States. We're going to see this disease continue on right. if we don't keep looking for it and being able to manage it. So right. I got a little long-winded, so I'll shut up. But thanks. Yeah, that's really some very, very good insight. Monica, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that question also on why this uh, orphan disease, because there's less than 200,000. And as Kyle pointed out, we've been hearing about it for a good while. But uh, why do you think people are not uh, being diagnosed? And that's still a problem, uh, I think, even to this day. So what is your insight on that, Monica? You know, um, for me, I think that I I agree with everything that Dr. Hogarth said. I I do believe that this is something that there are certain um, people that it's very obvious. But part of it is about the medical education that we all receive. And there's so much to think about in the differential diagnosis of this disease or that disease. And if you start thinking about zebras um, very early in your training, you know, you can become overwhelmed. And so I think that, you know, uh, we've all been taught to kind of... um, really not think about these zebras, but in fact, it is a laboratory diagnosis and it's something that we all need to be thinking about. But I think that people um, believe through our medical training that we know it when we see it. Uh, But as somebody who practices in New York City, where there's a lot of population mixing um, and a lot of um, people of different ethnicities, I still diagnose ZZ alpha one patients. And so it isn't just the patient that you can you can see it and that they're of Irish descent. We need to look at it in all of our patients. And um, getting past that is is something about us also as a community educating practitioners to understand there are treatments for it. Because I often hear people say, well, why would you test for it? It's a genetic disease. And so that's on us as a community to really educate. Well, thank you both. I'm going to move on now to uh, uh, another very interesting question. and uh, And that is, what motivated you to become an Alpha One advocate and support systematic screening, which is what we're going to be talking uh, for Alpha One antitrypsin deficiency? And I'd like to uh, first pose the question to Dr. Igor. Can you? Uh, how did you start out there in UCLA on the West Coast? Sure. Well, first, thanks, Jim, and, and thanks for having me in this great crowd. Uh, I actually didn't start with Alpha One and on the west coast i started on the east coast in new york but that said i'm i'm a pulmonologist and interested in copd and this is actually the only genetic and very well described genetic cause of or familiar cause of, of, of copd but that said i think the the significance of this disorder goes much beyond the pulmonary medicine it's a predisposition and it's a predisposition to whole set of various diseases that affect respiratory tract or gi tract or skin etc so with that said uh, as a genetic disorder, actually, this is, in my mind, a fairly low-hanging uh, fruit for any practitioner. This is a genetic disorder that has a very well-described genotype and its relationship with the endotype and phenotype. It is a genetic disorder that actually is very simple and very cheap and easy to test. And then the results that if you don't rule out, as Kyle pointed out, but actually, if unfortunately you rule in, this is the piece of information that any physician, not pulmonologist, actually delivers, and it's very significant and has amazing impact on the life of a person, independent on whether that person is sick and has significant lung disease, because you're providing an explanation. This also actually significantly impacts the life of someone who does not have any evidence of disease, of lung disease or, or gastrointestinal, because lifestyle modification may make a major impact on the whole life, life lifetime of that patient. 
And then in addition, you do have impact on the family members and the relatives of a person who gets tested. So I think that pretty much the, the, the you know the bang that you get for a buck actually is is such significant that I think that anyone who tests uh, uh, contributes a lot. Well, thank you, Igor. And let's move on to the next question. And we're going to put you back up, Monica, and then Dr. B, Dr. Igor again. Monica, what criteria do you use within your practice to determine that someone is appropriate to screen for alpha-1 deficiency? How do you implement this in your practice? I'll start with you, Monica, and then we'll go to Igor, okay? Yes, yeah, so I, I'm very by the book. I screen everyone with a diagnosis of COPD, regardless of age of diagnosis, smoking exposure history, or their um, uh, heritage. In addition, I screen everyone with asthma with incomplete bronchodilator reversibility. And I believe that that's actually where we find a lot of these patients who are a little bit sick, but not, not like the not very sick with alpha one. And in addition, I'm very blessed to have some wonderful colleagues within our um, hepatology clinic. And so every patient with cirrhosis, even if alcoholic cirrhosis is also screened for alpha one. And so we make a large number of diagnoses that way, obviously as well, paniculitis, um, which I seem to only diagnose paniculitis in my alpha patients. It's very rare that I a diagnosis of paniculitis um, backs me into an alpha-1 diagnosis just by nature of my practice. That's really very interesting. Uh, Monica, as a background, mentioned uh, the great expertise at Alpha-1 at Columbia University. I, as a young guy, uh, did two months with Dr. Jerry Torino when he was at uh, Columbia. And then, of course, your colleague, Janine D'Armiento, is the president of the Alpha One Foundation, and you had great liver people, as you mentioned. David Brenner was there and, and many others. So that's a really a, a, a terrific background that you that you shared in the Mara uh, Center for Alpha One that Dr. Torino had. Igor, how about you? How did it uh, how did it happen at UCLA with Dr. Taskin and all those <laughs> giants out there? That was... Yeah, uh, but- no, no, listen, this is a great question. And Monica really like, like uh, nicely covered this. I mean, maybe what I can say is just like add or emphasize a couple of things. So yes, there are things such as COPD, emphysema, but really adult onset asthma, as Monica has mentioned, even some common things that, that uh, in internal medicine, we can see uh, bronchiectasis. Bronchiectasis per se also should be a, a reason to screen. And then as you go beyond any end stage, we have a large end stage liver disease program and we're a large liver transplant center. I see the most of pa- uh, patients who are evaluated for liver transplant. And I can tell you, tell you anecdotally, uh, in the past, uh, unclear etiology of liver failure was tested for alpha-1 antitrypsin. In addition, I would like to mention something that we occasionally also skip. My patients, their relatives get tested. They are siblings. They are parents. And then at the same time, partners of people who are actually severe deficient, deficient actually get tested to get the projection for, for possible families, etc. And then I also need to mention one more thing. There is very particular new type of, of testing that is happening beyond our effort. And it's like all these commercial genetic testing kits that are coming. And I'm sure all of us who deal with Alpha One are flooded with these healthy young people who just ring on the door of our offices looking for explanation what the hell is this i just did tested and i got the paper that says that i'm prone now to get lung and liver disease so i think that independent of us i think that with the the availability of genetic testing and as we're moving forward this is going to become 
more and more um, topics about, to talk about. Those are excellent points that both of you made. And uh, like uh, the liver, uh, we had our what's called the MASEC, the Medical and Scientific Advisory uh, Committee to the Alpha One Board this past weekend. And I think 18 members are pulmonologists and only two are liver. And the real disease in liver, of course, is childhood hepatology uh, with, you know, the children who seem to get it. So in terms of screening, you know, it's just uh, it's a relatively young disease to the pulmonary community in the sense that, you know, Ron Crystal's studies and the registry, the historic registry, those studies go back not too many years ago, 20, 25 years ago. So it's pretty much new uh, to to a lot of pulmonologists, and we need to, uh, you know, keep working to get the signal out. But particularly, as you point out, that whole problem that, uh, you know, with the uh, with the liver disease, I mean, that really is the seed of the disease is the liver and the need to be aware of it and to get that into the awareness of the hepatologist, I think is a big challenge for all of us. Kyle, we've been leaving you off the hook here too much. So I got to put you back to work. Is that okay? Mm, that's great. No problem. Now we're going to take advantage of you. You are really known. And I, I know this from your work, a great communicator to the primary care. So knowing that people, most people with COPD are being cared for by a primary care provider. Right. What do you say to those healthcare providers about the importance and ease of screening to rule out alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency? So I'll start with you because of your great experience. Yeah, well, thank you. No, I appreciate that. Thanks for the compliment. I, so I think it's pretty straightforward here. And, and, and the reason I say that is, number one, um, primary care is set up to already uh, draw blood. So if it's going to be tested for from a blood draw, you're, you know, you're going to be drawing an annual CBC or comprehensive panel or thyroid scan or lipids, you know, whatever. So adding on one more blood test is straightforward. If blood's not an option, then obviously there are now buccal swabs as well that, that are, are part of being able to be tested. So there's a, a, a plenty of resources available. But I think what it really comes down to is when it comes to lung disease, I agree with you 100% majority of the COPD is being managed in primary care as it should be. And as part of that management and part of that evaluation, it's doing also the workup for the disease and doing again that rule out. And this is probably why it matters even more because nobody just suddenly has advanced end-stage lung disease and ends up in the four of our clinics, right? They got there over time. And so long before you're arriving to see me, gasping and on oxygen, et cetera, you were progressing. And you know, you saw somebody who diagnosed your COPD 15 years ago. And if they had diagnosed your alpha one 15 years ago, a lot more could have been done about it. And I think that's again where this this information comes in. The ultimate in primary care would be to make this diagnosis before something becomes a major problem. We know that's why we do screening for malignancies. Find them at early stage. So let's find alpha-1, or at least the lung disease from alpha-1, at early stages. I think the other key thing, too, is there's a lot of uh, drug development happening on the liver side. Right now, we don't have anything for the liver. That's right. Yeah. I'm fairly optimistic as to what's coming down the pipeline. So if we're going to be drawing liver function tests, and my two colleagues highlighted real clearly here that it's not just a pediatric disease. And so when you have those abnormal liver function tests, even in your alcohol absolutely, users, absolutely. right? Let's work it up. Excellent. So, you know, I think if you're going to prescribe an inhaler, there's a reason and there's obstructed disease and finish the workup. And it's not easy. 
there really isn't a lot of work either, right? I mean, tacking on one more blood draw or a simple buckle swab. Oh, and by the way, we already have data that shows once you explain to someone their increased risk for lung disease related to their genetics, you're more likely to get them to quit smoking, which that is the ultimate primary. Right, care, absolutely. Right? <laughs> Those are great points. Now, Igor, I'd like to follow up a little bit. I have two questions for you to focus on as part B of this question. Uh, is uh, First is... Uh, Talk to me about screening asthmatics. And then secondly, talk about the Griffel screening program. Sure. So, um, you know, first of all, I agree with everything that Kyle said. In general, the, the data that we like to quote for a while is that uh, a patient with alpha-1, diagnosed with alpha-1, on average, has previously like spent seven years looking for the diagnosis and, and seen at least three physicians. And we like to kind of talk about this data and, uh, you know, you could argue that nowadays with the guidelines that are out there since 2003, and, and I think this is very relevant that I remind, it's 20 years almost very clear that, that we have very clear indication to screen, that there are no insurance issues with screening, and then the also industry facilitated the screening, which gets me to what you mentioned. There are multiple industrial partners that work together along with Alpha One Foundation. They all work together in an organized fashion in which these kits, the simple kits, are kind of prepared, um, distributed to primary care, to pulmonary offices. They are very simple. They can either be the finger sticks or even buccal swabs that are doing the the simple, reliable methods of screening. I think the, the relationship between industry and academic medicine in this is very fair and square. Industry is making the product. They are looking for their potential customers, but in order to, that's for the greater good, that's for identification and recognition of the disease. So I use, and that gets back to what Kyle also has mentioned. When I do a blood work, I screen for alpha-1 antitrypsin, and I think that the provider should be familiar that in their institutions, there might be several different tests, and the alpha-1 levels per se may not be sufficient, sufficiently good for screen. There are alpha-1 phenotype or alpha-1 genotype, and if there is a blood work, these tests are readily available. If this comes just an add-on, it's a free uh, screening. And I think that the way to really look at this is that this should be incorporated in the practice. In my COPD clinic, when subject comes to be seen, actually, this is part of right. the workup. And in that sense, there is no, no reason for me to think of who should be screened. Everybody gets screened. And then we discuss exceptions not to screen. Right. And I think that should be the appropriate let way. Just, let me just ask Go you ahead. guys, and anybody can uh, chime in here. Uh, what do you think about the additional alleles uh, and the buccal swab that we're picking up? Has that been a value to you? It has been to me because I guess we, I see a lot of very uh, peculiar cases of alpha-1 just because I've been in, doing it for so long. And uh, finding those other alleles and working them up have been very uh, interesting and have led to some importance. The patients being uh, having their treatment, Walter, has that been true of others or is it too new? The yes. screening with the Monica, could you? Yeah, Jim, I can, I can give you a great story of a patient who had a phenotype done and she thought that she was MZ and then yeah. she had her child um, genotyped and the child came back actually as a MF. And as you know, the F, the right. F, Allele is a functionally it it, um, it is not functional, but on a on isoelectric phoresis would look like an M. And so this patient actually had walked around and she herself was a FC 
And so it's functionally like a ZZ patient. And so having something where we have a true genotype can only help us um, to make more diagnoses and make precise diagnoses for our patients. Yeah, I mean, Jim, it's a genetic disease. We want to know your genetics. And so the expanded genetic capabilities of the buckle swab test that, that Griffles provides is a huge benefit. And if, and if for whatever reason, a, you know, for me, it's all about clinic efficiencies. If your clinic is not set up to be able to use the buckle swab for whatever reason, then fine. If you're going to be seeing this patient and drawing any amount of blood and you've made an obstructed lung disease diagnosis, tack on the alpha-1 genotype. Some labs call it a phenotype, but just order the genotype so that it's coming with your next blood draw as well. Whichever way, in the end, when you've done the, the test, you've done your you know duty as a as a physician right. to manage the disorder, the COPD that you diagnose them with. Sounds very good. Help. That's very helpful. The next question: What has been the biggest value to you and your patients since you started screening COPD patients for alpha one? And uh, this is uh, first. I'd like to take a shot at because I was here <laughs> doing COPD before we had. Uh, you know, even 50 years ago, so that's how far back I go in the early 70s. But anyway, we didn't have screening earlier on. We send a level down and what have you. But it's been tremendous, not only for the individual patient, the fact that you get really accurate information that's scientific, uh, that you can really, uh, because it is so accurate, hang your hat on it. And then you can use that information to expand your search to the family members and use that as a great opportunity teaching point. And as many of you made, when we did the study a few years ago under, I think it was the foundation where we screened everyone who was obstructed in the uh, COPD uh, in the pulmonary function lab, one in 10 were carrying that gene. I think Kyle, somebody said that before, were carriers. Very few were ZZs, but a lot were carriers. That's truly, really, really important. So Kyle, I'm going to ask you to follow up to that. What is the risk of not screening for COPD? What kind of damage could be done? Well, that's a that's a that's a great question because let's just start. I think some of our colleagues have said this already. Let's just begin with the knowledge that there's a there's a genetic predisposition to the development of liver and lung disease that runs in your family. That automatically gives you the ability as a, both a clinician to to talk with your patient, but then to provide the insight to the patient as to why some lifestyle modifications immediately matter from either smoking or career choices, and then obviously uh, weight and alcohol intake, et cetera. So upfront, you can make changes. And they're, and they're not just a, oh, sure, every doctor tells me to lose weight and not smoke. I can say, no, definitively, you, not anyone else, you genetically have to do this. And here's why. Here's why what's going to happen. So right up front, that information matters. But also, think about it from just Put it into the mental context of any other disorder that you're not managing, and yet there it is continuing on and ravaging two separate organs potentially. That's why this matters so much, because it allows us to manage the disorder. We have treatment for alpha-1, especially when it's related to the lungs. We have a bunch under development in relation to the liver. But at the same time, let's even let's go a different step. I've diagnosed you with alpha-1. Let's say you actually at the moment have zero clinical manifestations other than some mild abnormal liver function tests. But now I'm about to put you on a statin. Maybe I'm going to rethink my medical approach to your other disorders, thinking up front of potential damage to your liver. I don't know, but an informed patient and an informed patient uh, and, and clinician, excuse me, 
make all the difference in regards to managing everything that we're dealing with in a primary care setting. That's great. Thank you, Kyle. And, uh, uh, and uh, I'd like to now uh, put Monica and Igor on the, on the firing line again. Now, the first question is, how, uh, how, how has the COVID-19 pandemic and the need to consider underlying risk factors impacted your view of the importance of identifying patients that have alpha-1? So Monica first and then Igor. We've talked a little bit about this. And like I said, I learned more about COVID in the ICU from Monica. I didn't know anything about it when we were on a conference call one day. So Monica, I'll let you start off and then uh, follow up with Igor, okay? Yes. Yeah, so, um, so unfortunately, in New York City, um, we had a really intense surge um, of COVID-19. And um, I was very lucky that, um, and I think all of us as a community were lucky that the Alpha One Foundation, the messaging to our patients was very, um, very informative early on about the importance of just isolating, staying at home until we understood more. And as we spent time understanding more, um, we understood that actually the patients with Alpha who did um, contract COVID-19 early in the pandemic, that some of those patients became very sick, some passed away. And um, through a whole body of research, it it has turned out that at least in part, some of that is due to the way that alpha-1 antitrypsin interacts with some of the enzymes that allow COVID-19 to enter the cells. And so I think that now looking back, it makes sense why we've seen such severe disease in patients, but it's also been important for for us as an alpha-1 foundation CRC to move forward in terms of educating our patients, number one, about the importance of the vaccine, but number two, also about as society returns back to work, what are some of the work environments that are safe and potentially not safe for an alpha one patient. And so, um, and so we have um, really thought very hard about each individual patient and their return to work in a vaccinated setting and um, uh, how risky or not risky that is um, uh, for them based upon their alpha one status. Well, thank you very much. And uh, <clears throat> as the panelists and I know, we've had a lot of discussion about the risk to alpha one patients. And fortunately data from AlphaNet said that the majority of them stayed home. So the number of cases wasn't awful because they, we all thought the fatality would be high, but other studies show that the, as Monica and Kyle and Negro have been pointed out, there is very, very low, if any alpha one in the lung during a, uh, uh, a uh, an, uh, an event with COVID. Furthermore, with bundling, sometimes patients with alpha-1, it's been a while since they received their last treatment if they're on uh, augmentation type of therapy. So Igor, do you have any perspective uh, on to add here uh, on, the, uh, on this question? Yeah, I always like to add. And the, I know Monica really put it nicely, but maybe, maybe it's important to emphasize that really COVID impacted like multiple levels. And there is definitely this medical side of it and there is very like technical and epidemiological side so to add to the medical side that monica has mentioned you know we know that alpha one of the trypsin has more than the role of just like neutralizing neutrophilic elastase we know that it has immunomodulatory effect we know that it's active phase reactant i mean alpha one does have this nice soothing and immunomodulatory effect and very soon into covid we realized that this is not just upper respiratory infection this is systemic infection this is systemic infection with very significant immunological kind of consequences, immunological storms, etc. So in that sense, definitely this is the medical impact of COVID onto our population. And that said, the technical, now I'm getting really to, to, to the back into the, my office and sitting in, in, in this chair, the COVID of impact, or impact of COVID on epidemiological side really uh, brought 
less direct interaction with patients, less ability to really see, to test patients. A lot of visits have turned into video visits. A lot of infusions have been compromised during the COVID era and skipped because of, of it. So I would say that, you know, the, the impact of, of pandemics reaches multiple levels. But as you pointed out, Alpha 1 antitrypsin patients are well organized. Alpha 1 Foundation is keeping them organized. They kind of protected themselves quite well. And we did not have uh, many cases of people who, who actually ended up uh, dying with, with uh, COVID of Alpha 1 antitrypsin. Well, I'm going I'm to follow up that point about the patient and the patient perspective. And uh, how has the patient experience, perspective, and reaction been regarding screening for alpha-1? I'd like to ask, uh, as a genetic disease, hereditary disease, I'd like to ask Kyle uh, his, his opinion on that. We do, again, uh, his, he's had a lot of experience in talking to the patient. So, Kyle? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, the patients actually are, are, when you ultimately make this diagnosis, clearly there's the shock of being told this and and that that's a natural understanding but it's also interesting that there's a there's a sense of relief in a way because inevitably if there's been smoking involved um you know society is not very kind to smokers and lung disease as we all know and there's a there's a sense of burden relieved actually by kind of explaining that you know i had a genetic predisposition to this and and so i find frequently that that the genetic aspect of this disease provides some level of of sort of mental relief for some of my patients. Now, where we run into a lot of problems and I spend a lot of time dealing with, and I'm sure my colleagues as well too, is then the extended family testing sometimes falls short. And there is a, a frustrating, you know, I want to put my head in the sand approach that some family members take. Um, even with the ACT study through the foundation and the ability to get confidential testing and to get it not, you know, even necessarily in the doctor's office, to get around some of that, um, uh, it's been frustrating. But um, over and over and over, um, you know, I think we, we've been using some case examples occasionally. You know, I had a young alpha one patient uh, was diagnosed in childhood as a double Z, and she she called me one day and said, "Hey, you know, I'm, I'm, we're thinking about having kids. Uh, you know, is this going to affect my pregnancy?" And she had no liver or lung disease clinically. And I said, "No, you know, just go. You know, in normal pregnancy, et cetera, et cetera." but get your spouse tested. And she said, oh, there's no lung disease in his family. Everybody in his family has heart disease. So that's great. Get him tested. Sure enough, he was a carrier. And it really does highlight this very high carrier rate. And of course, it doesn't change anything about them having children. It just made an informed decision, and especially on the monitoring of the newborn, especially obviously if there's jaundice. And so, you know, I, you know when Igor talked about earlier about some of the, the, the uh, sort of lay level blood testing that's going on to test your ancestry and your heritage. You know, I think when genetics was first coming out as a, as a field and as a, as a concept, there was this, you know, understandably broad concern about my genetic information, but it really strikes me, especially amongst a younger generation, how open everybody is about genetics and how interested everyone is in, in genetics. And it's, I think comes again to say, look, there was a predisposition to this lung or liver disease you have. We want to be able to do something about that. And testing for it is so simple and so easy, and especially for the extended family, so that people, again, can make informed choices. Thanks, Kyle. Monica, do you have any uh, insight into this, uh, the patient you perspective? Know, 
I think that, um, so thinking about a different part of the patient perspective has been all of these patients that have been diagnosed with alpha one during the course of the pandemic and how hard their care has been. I've really, um, I've been, I felt very, um, uh, fortunate that in this setting that we have been able to bring many patients in through telehealth um, and that we were able to see people quicker and maybe um, earlier than necessarily when they would have felt comfortable coming into Midtown Manhattan to see us. But at the same time, there's something about being able to like look somebody in the eye and really talk to them about the diagnosis that it's it's virtually impossible to do via telehealth. And so we've tried to kind of come up with some hybrid ways of at least starting, um, starting virtual, and then catching them, you know, in, in house for PFTs or whatever else, but the, but undoubtedly the care for patients during the pandemic with this sort of like, um, you know, real surprise dropped in their lap has, has not been easy and, um, and, uh, um, has been something that, uh, you know, hopefully we can um, all move forward from soon. Thank you, Monica. And Kyle. Jim, can I make one small plug again? From, yeah, please, from a, please. Yeah. From a perspective of being a primary care physician, um, and, and I'll, I'll watch the nodding of the heads of my colleagues, taking care of alpha one patients is a joy. They are an unbelievably informed and organized group on average. You know, how often are you dealing with patients where you say, what inhalers are you on? And they go, I don't know that it's purple, I think, you know, and maybe, but your alpha one patients, they'll be the ones who'll come to you and say, Hey, did you, did you see that article about the uh, new blah, blah, blah? And you go, no, when did it come out? Oh, like 10 minutes ago, it's all over the web. The whole community's lit up about it. It is a wonderful thing to take care of these patients because they really are an informed and organized group. So go looking for them and you too can join the club. You know, that brings <laughs> you back to that, uh, the old, uh, Adage that alphas disease, uh, uh, the benefit that they received uh, was uh, increased uh, intelligence and creativity. Just a quick anecdote. One of the patient perspectives that I have, because there's a point here, I had a patient uh, one day whose daughter I taught physical diagnosis, and he transferred his care to me late in life. And um, I, it was back in the old days, I threw up the x-ray and he had uh, panlobular emphysema, the chest x-ray. Anyway, the long story, he's a genetic epidemiologist and he became passionate about studying the disease. And one of the things I was always working under the assumption, this is a Viking disease like CF. So it's a Caucasian disease. No, he went and, and went and looked at the African data and, of course, the Spanish with the S gene that they get. And sure enough, I, you should screen African-Americans and Hispanics, too, please. Don't just screen Viking, <laughs> obvious to say. So I thought that was pretty cool that, you know, with him not knowing he had it till late in life and then getting fired up. But we got to uh, end this quickly uh, because I'm using up too much time. But anyway, the last question here is to uh, is to uh, uh, Dr. B first, Igor. Uh, what advice would you offer fellow uh, HCPs, practitioners, healthcare practitioners that are looking to do more to diagnose and treat alpha one? Do you have any advice for them, how they can learn more about it? What do you tell them when they, other than writing an excellent consult note back to them? What are other, what other no, things? No, the, the, the message things in like the message is very clear. Test for alpha one and tetrapsin. One thing is that first, it's around, right? Like we estimate 100,000 maybe severe disease, but actually when you look at the carriers, the heterozygous Z, we're talking about over 5 million in the United States. So if you saw COPD, if you have patients with asthma and COPD, you probably do have some people who are 
carriers or, or severely deficient. Secondly, really, this testing, it belongs to healthcare practitioners because healthcare practitioners, because this is multi-systemic potential disorder. It's not a pulmonary disease, it's not liver disease. So with that testing, you are covering actually multiple specialties, dermatology, pulmonary, liver, GI, etc. So one kind of stone hits like, like a few birds. Then um, the testing is easy. The kits are available. Anybody can do it. It can be you. It can be your RN, your MA. It can be even the, the, the patient, him or herself, can actually uh, do the, the participating testing. And it's free. And then finally, this is really a genetic disorder. It's a low-hanging fruit to get into the what future is. And we're hopefully getting toward personalized medicine. This is one simple, easy step to get into that field, to be able to, deal, to, to find genetic disorder and not to have devastating news, but really to have impactful news to, to your uh, patients. Sharing the finally positively diagnosed with pulmonologists is really sharing that that patient is, is, still belongs to healthcare practitioner. Kyle, what do you have? And then I'm going to ask Monica, do you have any advice also where uh, uh, both of you and your in interactions with the primary care ACP, uh, how to get better educated if they want to? Because some, I think you mentioned it, really become impassioned about this condition. To yeah, wrap I, it up. I mean, I, you know, we all, let's face it, we all, on one level, every single one of us went into healthcare, no matter what you're, how you're practicing and what you do, because you want to make a difference. You want to change people's lives for the better. And I can't think of a better way than this because a simple test can dramatically shift how someone's lung disease and or liver disease, or as Igor said, this the multi-systemic disease is going to be managed and it's going to be managed proactively instead of reactively. And I thought that was always the basic tenet of all of medicine, but especially primary care. Let's be proactive. Let's find things before they become big problems. And this simple thing allows you to become this essentially leader in lung health within your practice. Uh, there's a um, uh, colleague who's a physician assistant in Georgia who took this on as just a passion project. And the single greatest success was simply integrating it into a protocol within this large group practice where patients who had abnormal spirometries who, you know, had, or came in with a diagnosis of COPD got tested automatically right up front as part of the visit before they'd even seen the healthcare provider. And this person took it on as a passion project and, of course, has made massive changes in multiple patients' lives. And, a, a, you know, a click of an order in an electronic record or a simple buckle swab that the patient can practically do themselves right there in clinic, that I mean, did something so simple to make a massive impact. I mean, we can all be so lucky. I, I entirely agree. And I would add on to all of those um, very on point comments that actually the future for alpha one is bright. And I really, um, you know, I think that uh, as doctors, we also, um, there's a tendency to want to shield your patients from things that may be, may be sad to them or may be harmful or may have implications for life insurance or other things. But the future for Alpha One is bright. It is not a death sentence. This is something that um, I really tried to emphasize as well as what everybody else has said that in addition, when you find an alpha, um, they become a part of the alpha family, and there's probably no no better patient group to work with than alphas. And so, um, but it is a bright future, I hope, for them. Thank you, Monica. And I want to uh, thank uh, the panelists for this excellent discussion. Focus on these eight questions today, and obviously, 
uh, we're uh, obviously very passionate, but as the speakers have mentioned, this is a, although a rare disease and an orphan disease, the frequency of uh, particularly the carrier state is quite high. So your screening will not be uh, unproductive. It'll often be productive, particularly if you follow the guidance, if you hear, if you know of them for, you know, early liver disease, early emphysema disease, familial disease, asthma, that it's irreversible component, those kinds of things. And you'll be greatly rewarded. I think that's the thing I want to talk about most and hope you understand. The screening leads to positive results, particularly in the lives of our patients and their loved ones. And so uh, it is, as the three young panelists said today, it is extremely rewarding. So I have a, I have a question for the panelists. Monica, let me start with you. What are some resources you would recommend to HCPs uh, to help them to learn more about screening and about alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency? So I recommend to all of um, the PCPs that refer patients to us that also that, that the Alpha One Foundation is a very rich resource with regards to information for our patients and for their families. In addition to some of the educational material that can be found on the foundation's website, I found that the foundation is incredibly helpful with regards to talking to patients about insurance implications, helping them navigate through the whole um, Medicare, Medigap um, for proper coverage um, for infusions, um, but and also our, our staunch advocates for making sure that there's familial screening and have put um, a ton of time and effort into making sure that familial screening can be done even in a confidential manner through the ACT study. Um, but to the patients, I also, I, I refer patients back to, the, I refer the patients to Alpha One Foundation but in addition, I think that one of the most important things that a primary care doctor can do for an alpha one patient is to make sure that at least once a year that you're getting these patients into an alpha one alpha one foundation clinical resource center um, so that they can have proper lung and liver evaluations um, to make sure that not only are they um, receiving the care that they should have for alpha one, but in addition that they're hearing about research studies that they may be eligible for um, as a part of their alpha one diagnosis. Kyle, I'm going to end up with you. Our colleagues yeah. in industry have uh, really played a major part, not only in the education programs through the foundation, but also in AlphaNet, but also independently by providing the screening kits and a place to have the screening test done well and very accurately. Do you have some insight onto that to, that you would like to, what, what do you share? Cause you, told me you did a lot of talking with the primary care doctors. What do you share with them about the screening and the availability of it? Absolutely. How they can learn. Yeah, no. So, I mean, this is one of those wonderful areas where there is no, no shortage of resources. Um, as everyone has said, starting with the foundation and then also from a patient's perspective with the AlphaNet. And then obviously, um, this is one of these great scenarios where our industry partners play a huge role. When we've talked about the buckle swab tests, it's been mentioned how that's a free test. That free test is only available to you because of the commitment that a company like Griffles has made to this disease state and to this patient population. But when we say it's free, it's completely free. That is an unbelievable commitment. And it's all about finding these patients. And then as, uh, as was stated by both my colleagues, I mean, the Alpha Foundation, if ever there was a more amazing organization that's re really designed to constantly fight for only one thing, which is to get rid of this disease. And so, and then until we can do that day, 
manage it and find all the patients. Um, there's just an unbelievable amount of resources. And the so between the foundation, the Alphanet, and uh, the representatives of the company, you have more resources than you could ever hope for. Well, thank you all for your insights. And, uh, uh, and uh, we look forward to uh, getting some feedback from the practitioners themselves on this subject. I'd like to thank the panelists for their engaging and, and enthusiastic discussion today. Also, for all the participants for uh, 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 listening to the program, I hope that you uh, got a lot out of it and know more now about uh, uh, screening. I'd like to turn it over to the live portion of the program now. This program was sponsored by Griffles. If you missed any part of this discussion, visit ReachMD.com slash industry feature. This is ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.